So we have been in Acts chapter 2 for a while, and this is basically what we're doing. We're going down this beautiful descriptive picture of the early church, kind of at the end of Acts chapter 2, and we're asking this question. What did these people value? Like, I think when God looked in Acts chapter 2 and saw his church there, I think it pleased him what he saw. And so there are some things that we want to take from them. And so I'm not saying that, that we have to sell our possessions and give everything to the poor. But I am saying this, that there are some things that they valued under the surface that we as a 21st century church have got to value. And so that's what we're trying to do here. What what do they value and how does this apply in 21st century living? Okay, so here's some of the things we've talked about so far. We've talked about missional living, how there's got to be this element in us, just like it was in them. So you you work into Acts chapter 2, and here's what you see. All throughout the book of Acts is you see people that everywhere they went, the gospel surrounded them. Maybe you could picture missional living this way. There is a bubble around these people called the gospel. So you've got this this gospel bubble, and everywhere they went, they took this bubble with them. And so when they bump into somebody at the grocery store, when they bump into anywhere they go, this bubble is bumping into people with them. Does that make sense? That's what missional living is. It is taking the gospel into every place we go. It goes into our workplace with us. It's in our family with us. Everywhere we go, the gospel is there. That's missional living. Okay, so we talked about missional living. We talked about truth. How we have got to be people who desperately and passionately pursue the truth in scriptures. And at the end of the day, we read scripture, we study scripture, we memorize scripture, not so we can have more information, but as John says, that is the way that we get Jesus. So we are people pursuing truth. And then we talked about Christian spirituality. This was a few weeks ago now. We talked about how when the truth of God hits us, the gospel lands on us. It creates things. It has an outward expression. So the gospel changes us internally, and then it's expressed in a thousand different ways on just the playing field of life. Okay, so the gospel comes out. That's Christian spirituality. Um, Okay, now let me kind of hang this umbrella over all these, and then we'll jump into this morning. The question that I want you to ask as we talk about these things, I I think when you hear truth, you hear Christian spirituality, you hear missional living, you hear all these things. I don't think the problem we have in this room is an agreement problem. I think most of you, when you hear these things, you agree with them. Like you hear it and there's something in there that says, yeah, that, that seems biblical. That seems right. I agree. So the question is not agreement. The question is personal application. So specifically, as we talk about this one this morning, here's what I want to ask you. What would your life look like if you really believed it? If you really believed it, what would it look like? How would this change some things? What would this mean for your life? How would this, diff- how, how would this change the way you operate in your family? How would this change the way you operate in your neighborhood, in your workplace? If you believe what we're talking about this morning, how, how would it change things? What's the personal application piece of this for you? Okay, so Acts chapter 2, here we go. Um, Starting in verse 41, starts like this. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. And we've started there every time. Every time we've opened up to Acts chapter two, we've started right there. And here's the reason, because if we don't get 41 in there, we miss the power of 42 through 46 or seven there. Okay, so 41 is basically saying this, that God, Peter preached a sermon. Okay, and here, here's what happened at the end of that. God moved in such a powerful way that the people look back at him and he says, they say this, what must we do to be saved? I mean, what needs to happen on our end of this thing? So God has worked in such a powerful way that that is their response back. 
And, and Peter's response is you repent. You turn from sin and you pursue God, a lifelong pursuit of God. Turn from sin, lifelong pursuit. That's what repentance is. And so at that moment, they were saved. And here's what happens when you're saved. There is a drastic inner change that happens. If you, if you would say this this morning, that I am a, I'm, a, I'm a believer, I am a follower of God. Here's what has had to have happened for that to be true. God has had to work in such a way in your heart that you have grown to love new things, different things. That's what the grace of God does over us. It hits our heart in such a way that for the first time we would look at God and we would say, I love him. I, I am willing to drop everything and pursue him. Matthew 13, I think there's a beautiful picture of this. When you've got a guy that finds a treasure in a field, right? He sells everything that he has in his joy and he runs after the treasure. That's the picture of salvation. Jesus appears before us and he has changed us to such a degree that we look at him with such affection that we would say, I'll drop it all and I'm running after you. It's this drastic interchange. And then look at what it produces. All these things that follow are produced by the gospel changing them on the inside. So here we go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, now verse 45 is this thing we're going to zero in on this morning. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, okay, here we're going to jump into our next core value. It's a simple word called service. Okay, let me define it for you. Um, Service is uh, gladly giving your life away. In radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. Gladly giving your life away in radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. That's what service is. Okay, so if you want to talk about an under the surface, like under the current value of the early church, it was service. They were gladly giving their life away. And all these radical acts of sacrifice, you just look through the book of Acts and you see them in every chapter, these radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. That's what service is all about. Okay, so you see this in verse 45. They're selling their possessions and distributing it to those who had need. Okay, now this is not, um, I'm giving away the jeans that I stopped wearing in high school. Like they were about eight size smaller, right? Okay, this is not those jeans. This is not selling your fifth TV. This is, I'm liquidating all of my assets, even the things I like, and I'm giving those things away. Okay, so sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving something you love that you would value. Sacrifice is not giving something you don't care about. Sacrifice is giving something you love for something you love even more. And sacrifice is always a part of service. So they are giving things that they value, things that they enjoy, things that they like for something they love even more. Giving their life away in these radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. That is what service is. Okay, now I have some angst in just what we're talking about this morning for a couple of reasons. And, and let me give you two of them real quick. Why I think this is important. Well, I feel a little bit of a weight with this one. When we talk service, um, one is because of this. I think in our, in our just church culture and the way people view church, I, I think most people look at church as another thing to be consumed. 
And so here's how the typical church thing goes for us. Um, We go to church, and here's how we start to evaluate it. Did my kids get? Did the sermon, did I get something out of the sermon? Um, we, We evaluate worship like this. Did I get something out of the worship? Okay, now I'm not saying all that is wrong. Like, I think there is a place for that. Like, I think you need to be a good steward of where you place your family. That is a good thing. Okay, now, now listen to this, though. There has got to be a point where you move past, I am getting. There has to be a day that, that we stop consuming resources, that we stop taking, that we stop sucking the life out of a place, and we start contributing to the life of a place. There has to be a day where the table is turned for us. These questions are all okay. But there's got to be a day when those questions turn to, or maybe from, how, how can I get, did I get to, how can I give to a place? How can I give life to a Okay, so I feel a weight in that because I think just the current culture of church is, how, how do I get, how do I consume, how do I take from a place? Okay, now, now this one is even more important though. I de- and I, I hope you would agree with this. I desperately want to be a part of a place that in the eyes of God is great. Do you? Like, I want to be a part of a church that God would look down on and say, that is a great church. That church in my eyes is great. Okay, now here's the thing. That has nothing to do with our programs. Has nothing to do with size. It has nothing. I mean, there is a place for preaching in there. But you can have great preaching and still not have a great church. There is a place for worship in there, but you can have great worship and not have a great church. Great in the eyes of God is largely dependent upon. Okay, listen to this. Great in the eyes of God is largely dependent upon us being a place and a people who gladly give our life away in radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. For God to look down at Stonegate and say, That is great. It is largely dependent upon you and I being people who don't just take, who don't just suck life, who gladly give their life away in radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. I want to be a part of that. I want to be in a place like that. And so there's some angst this morning. This morning is really, really important if we want to go there. Okay, so Mark chapter 10. I think this is going to be a perfect um, text to kind of look at for us to say, okay, what, what does this mean? Like, how do we step into service and how does this work and how, how does this play out in life for us? So Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible so you can... You can uh, look up there. If you, if you want a Bible, there are some, I think, at the end, maybe under every three or four chairs. Feel free to take one of those. If you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible, that's the translation that we use, the ESV. So feel free to take one of those if you like. Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. You might just kind of underline that in your Bible if you have it. Going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Okay, so I think it just kind of lends into this question. What were they afraid of? Like, why, why are they afraid? Key phrase in there is they are going to Jerusalem. Okay, going to Jerusalem would like being a Texas fan wearing his Texas shirt and crossing the Red River. Bad things happen to that guy. You know, people like that disappear every now and then, all right? And so um, Jesus is going to Jerusalem with his disciples. Now, in Jerusalem, people wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. 
This was not a friendly place for him. This was not a place that was going to welcome him in. This was not a place they were going to have him over for dinner. This was a place that wanted him dead. So they were afraid. Okay, then he starts to explain here. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was about to happen. This is why they were afraid. Verse 33 saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay. So I would say this is a big moment in the life of Jesus, you know? Like, this is one of those moments where you're kind of burying your soul. I mean, this is one of those moments where the curtain comes down and somebody gets to see behind it. Okay, so this is that, I mean, this is a remarkable kind of a, a, this is a big moment in the life of Jesus. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, listen, I am on my way to Jerusalem and it is not going to go down well. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm about to be mocked, falsely accused, tried, scourged, beaten, flogged, and eventually slayed. This isn't going well. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. Notice the contrast. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm about to go and give my life away. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, pause for just two seconds here. That question never has a good ending, right? I mean, don't ever let, don't ever let yourself be trapped into the, go ahead and make the commitment before I ask the question sort of a deal. It never goes well. Okay, and this is about to go really bad here. Listen to what they say, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want from me? I love how he responds. He's not saying, no, I, yeah, I'll give you what. He's not doing that. His response back is, what do you want? Then I'll tell you if you're going to get it. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And you might underline that. That's a key phrase. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know. Listen to just the compassion in this verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. You are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, listen to verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Okay, so this is an amazing moment. Like, I think this is, this is kind of funny, almost. Um, if you think people from Oklahoma are backwards, just meet a couple from Kansas, right? Okay, but these guys, these disciples... These disciples, they're not getting this. I mean, they have got a serious problem. Jesus had just said, I'm about to get killed in Jerusalem. Okay, I hate to kind of break the moment here, but I've got a question. Yeah, I mean, is that not weird? I mean, we have got a real intimate moment. I'm about to die thing going on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they've got the question, I want to be at your right and left hand. I mean, just make sure. The order's not necessarily a big deal. I'll take the right. Who cares? I, you just make sure this is set up right. I mean, just a bizarre moment. Okay, now under the surface, let me give you kind of what's going on kind of under the current here. Um, the disciples still can't get past this idea that Jesus is going to be a military, military uh, ruler here. I mean, they literally think that Jesus saying, I'm about to die in Jerusalem. They really think that's code for, I'm about to call in the SWAT team. 
drop a nuclear bomb and we're about, it's about to be on. You know, I mean, that, I, I don't know how this is working exactly for them, but they can't get past the idea that Jesus is about to come in and take state in Jerusalem. Okay, and so here's the problem. You, you've got this set up to where there's this battle for greatness. The pecking order is established. It's not a question of I take the right, you take. The question is I want to make sure Jesus, before this thing goes down, before the SWAT team comes in, that we're all clear on this. I get the right, he gets, we're all in. Okay, you know how there's those moments in life that you just never forget? Like you almost try to sometimes, but you just can't forget them. When I was in the fourth grade, I had one of those moments. Casey Moss and I are at this place. It was an abandoned restaurant called The Bluff. Small town, Oklahoma. And it was called The Bluff because there was like a bluff that was on the back side of it, kind of overlooked these tennis courts. So we're talking maybe a 40-foot drop-off at the end of this bluff. Stairs go down to these tennis courts. We're riding our bike there after school, pop into The Bluff on the little deck, and we look down and people are playing tennis. And the most brilliant idea popped into my brain. Why don't we get a rock and throw it at them? Okay, so we get our rocks. We've got our weapons. We're there. We're ready. We throw the rock and all of a sudden, I mean, we duck, obviously. Throw, duck. Okay, we, we got that part down. We were at least that smart. It sounded like a bomb went off. It hit the top of their car. Okay, and so now... now just picture this. You got two fourth graders. I don't know what they're doing. Just heard a rock, a big rock, hit the top of a car. We're sitting down behind this little patio thing, kind of covered up. And I look at him. He looks at me. And it is this, oh, no, what do we do moment. And so like any fourth grade boy would do, it's time to run. And so we take off out of this bluff. We grab our bikes. I'm literally like three pedals in. All of a sudden, I feel a man's hand on the back of my shirt. The oh no moment just really solidified right there, right? We're, we're literally a block away from the police station. He, he just drives us on our bike right into the police station. Now, here, here's what I laugh about with that story. There was a moment that that idea, throwing a rock that could dent a car and do a little bit of damage... Throwing that onto a tennis court where people are playing tennis. There was a moment that that sounded brilliant. Isn't that amazing? How does that ever sound brilliant? There was a moment that sounded like the smartest idea in the world. But doesn't it look ridiculous looking back? You know, I think if James and John were looking back on this story, they would have that sentiment. It seemed like the question to ask, but doesn't it look absolutely ridiculous as you look back on it. I mean, doesn't it seem silly? And and here's what I think is interesting with this, is that this isn't necessarily just a James and a John thing. If you go back a chapter in, in Mark 9, verse 30, Jesus says the same thing again. He has the intimate moment again. I'm about to be killed in Jerusalem. And then look at what this says in verse 33. I'll I'll read it to you. It says this in Mark 9, 33. Right after, he's just done the same thing. I'm about to be killed. Okay, here we go. Mark, again. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I just said I was going to be killed. What were you discussing along the way? 
But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So this was not just a James and a John thing. This was an all of them thing. All of them were so concerned. Listen to this. All of them were so concerned about who was going to be somebody. When Jesus was primarily concerned about being nobody. And you know, I, I don't think that the other disciples, like in verse 41, it says they became indignant at James and John. I don't think it's because they asked the question. I, I don't think it's because James and John said, hey, can I sit there and the other one? Yeah, I, I think that the problem, the, the reason they were mad at James and John is because they really believe they deserve to be on the right and left side. Now, okay, you've got a ridiculous situation playing itself out here, but let me ask you this question. Can you see yourself in there? Can you see yourself in there? One of these disciples, Jesus has just said, I'm about to be slayed, and yet we're most concerned with who's the greatest. Do I get that seat and that seat? I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, can you see yourself in there where the number one concern is making sure the pecking order is established? The number one concern is making sure we've got the seat of honor. The number one concern is making sure we have climbed the ladder. The number one concern is making sure we're in the position of power. The number one concern is making sure we get the applause. The number one concern is making sure the eyes of people are on us. The number one concern is making sure when people look at us, they see somebody that is great. I mean, can you see yourself in that picture? Um, This last uh, summer, we took a group of um, 15 or 20 juniors and seniors to L.A. on a mission trip. And it was a, it was a wild trip. It was, it was really something else. We stayed on top, like on the roof, skyline of an inner city building. And so we're five story ups. We're going to sleep with the, the L.A. skyline kind of in the background. Kind of a neat thing. And I remember one time we're driving out, going to eat some dinner one night. And it literally, you, if you were just driving through it or walking through it, you could mistake it for a third world country. I mean, the streets are lined with tents and cardboard boxes. That's home for that night. And so um, here would be our normal day. We would, uh, we would get up in the morning and we would feed them breakfast and we would do lunch for them sometimes dinner, and it would be several hundred people coming in each one of these meals. And then in the afternoon, our typical schedule would be to go to a park, and we would just hang out with people. We're playing checkers, chess, I mean, you name it. We're just kind of doing the whole relational thing in this park. And there's a group of guys that had a basketball court at this park, and so um, there's a group of guys that we would play basketball with, with these guys every day. And I think there were some beautiful and tragic moments in the middle of this. Um, I remember Mike Bazzini and I, we met this one guy who the night before, he had been clean from drugs for like a year. I mean, this is a guy with a family. This is a guy with a job. This isn't like weirdo. This is normal guy. Shows up in this park. He had just gotten high the night before. I mean, I tell you, just seeing like how addiction ravages somebody, even good people, Right? I mean, just heartbreaking. And so um, we're there playing basketball one day, and uh, we just kind of finished up. I mean, I was obviously dunking on people left and right, and uh, we had just finished up playing. And as we finished, we kind of had this thing going where we had one guy with just a big personality. So he would get people kind of along the sides that were just kind of sitting there watching. He would get these people counting down the buzzer for us. So you've got the five, four, three, two, that whole thing going on. Like everybody does that when they're in the fourth grade, right? You're MJ just for a second. And so um, the five, four, three, two, one, we would shoot. 
air ball, I mean the whole deal, right? And so at the end of that, there was these two people that had been watching this whole thing go down. Their eyes are glazed over. It literally looked like life had beat the trash out of them. And so they're sitting kind of on the edge of this court, just watching this whole thing go down. And as we leave, we've got this group of 15 or 20 people. As we leave, um, we throw the ball at one of them. He grabs it and we kind of, we're going to do the countdown for him. And so this guy gets up. You can kind of tell he's just kind of a little more alive here. He grabs the ball, and I, I'm pretty sure he was drunk. I mean, he stumbled like half court dribbling this thing. He'd do the behind. I mean, just doing the whole deal out here, right? So he's not going to go for a layup. We do the countdown. He's obviously going to launch a three pointer. And so we've got the five, four, three. At one, he he shoots it. Drunk guy, eyes glazed over, dribbling a basketball, shoots. I mean, we're all just cracking up watching this thing. He makes it. Have no idea how he did it. He makes it. And I, I wish I had a video camera on what happened at that moment. This guy that was half dead came alive. I mean, th- he turns around and he's doing the celebrate, I mean, the run thing on the other. I mean, he's doing this whole thing going crazy. The eyes of this whole park are on him. We were that loud. And so he is going nuts. Okay, now, now here's what that moment reiterated for me. That there is a piece of every person that loves that moment and wants that moment for them. Every one of us. That we want that position of greatness. We want that position of, I am the man. I am the, I have done it. We want that position of authority. We want that position of, of power. There is a piece of all of us that wants that. Every one of us in here. So I'm asking this question. Can you see yourself in the disciples? Worried about the pecking order. Worried about how high can I climb up this thing? Can you see yourself in that picture? And I love verse 38 because you just see the compassion of Jesus come out. And can I just admit to you this, that I'm a sinful person. And I have to personally fight that definition of greatness. Just like all of us in here have to fight this idea of God make much of me. And and so they ask this shameful thing. If you want to see yourself in the disciples, look at what you've asked from God maybe over the last six months. Just look at what you've asked from God. I think it will give you a good portrait of you being a disciple. And so they had this shameful request. God, make sure, Jesus, make sure I'm on your right. He's on the left. The pecking order is good. And Jesus looks back at him and I can see myself there. And he looks back at him with compassion and patience and just says, you do not have any idea what you're asking of me. No clue. And can we just take a moment to stop this morning and to thank God for his patience in not granting us everything we ask? I mean, what eighth grade hormonal boy doesn't ask to marry his eighth grade sweetheart, you know? Thank God that he has patience with us. Let's keep reading here, verse 42. And Jesus called them to, and so he's going to take this and kind of turn this into a teaching moment. And Jesus called them, the disciples, to him and said to them, and this is going to be kind of this idea of worldly greatness coming in. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones 
uh, their great ones exercise authority over them. But look at this. This is this reversal. But it, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you. Okay, so now notice here. He's not condemning this idea of you wanting to be great. He, he's not saying, uh, that piece in that picture of L.A., the guy going nuts when he hit that shot. He's not looking at that. God's not looking at that and saying, I condemn that. Don't do that. He's not saying that. He's going to take that and redirect it. He's going to purify it. He's going to sanctify it. He's going to direct it in a God-honoring way. Look what he says. But whoever of you would be great, whoever wants that, look what he says, must. Must is an exclusive word. Like must is one of those words that you can't build a bridge around it. You can't have another way. This is the one way to it. Must is that sort of a word. So whoever wants to be great among you, you must do this. This is the one thing that must happen. Look what he says. You must be a servant. If you want to be great, you have got to be a servant. Then he's going to take it a step further, verse 44, and say this. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. So here's what's happening. Jesus is completely redefining what it means to be great. Complete reversal here. A divine reversal. He has completely flipped this thing around. And he's saying this, if you want to be great, you have got to be a slave. And that's a really familiar passage. So don't let the familiarity rob it of its power. That is a piercing blow to a first century here. I mean, they have a descriptive picture all around them of what a servant is, what a slave is. A servant is somebody that's not trying to climb up the ladder of power, but trying to go down it. A slave is not concerned with their rights. A slave is concerned with serving their master. Let me ask you this question. Do you consider yourself more of a slave in life or more of a master? And he's saying this, if you want to be great, you have got to climb down the ladder. You have got to stoop down, not crawl up. You have got to go down and be a servant. You have got to crawl down and be a slave. That is where greatness is. And listen, there's always been competing definitions of what it means to be great. You look in verse 42, here's what the Gentiles viewed as great. It's those who have power, those that can exercise authority, those who have climbed up the ladder and can now look at the landscape of people and say, you do this and you do that. That's who we consider great. And he's saying, no, that's not, that is not what greatness is. Greatness is not climbing up, it is crawling down. Let me give you a, maybe a, the world's definition of great here. It would go something like this. So, and it's going to be on the screen for you. Self-sufficient individuals motivated by selfish ambition for the purpose of self-exaltation. That's who the world considers great. Self-sufficient individuals motivated by selfish ambition for the purpose of self-exaltation. I mean, just think about... okay. Th- this is amazing because I've kind of done this over the last couple of weeks and it's almost hurt me how I've used this word. Okay, think about the last 20 or 30 times you have used the word great. Think about how you use the word great in just normal conversation. And here's what I think you find. that We use the word great in a very worldly sense. We use the word great. It's football season, right? And so we use the word great to say that quarterback can throw the ball great. That was a great pass. We use the word great. Basketball season just started. That guy can shoot the ball 
great. He is a great basketball player. We use the word great in all sorts of world. I, okay, th- this is basically how greatness is defined for us. It's on a competitive level. And so if I want to be great in school, here's what it means. I've got to make more A's than this person. If I want to be great in business, my bottom line needs to be better than that person's. If I want to be great um, in family stuff, my family's got to be better than that family's. If I want to have a great house, it's got to be better than that person's house. If I want to be great, it's got to be better than people around me. It's all measured competitively. And Jesus says, that is not what greatness is. Greatness has nothing to do with you being better than anybody. Greatness has everything to do with you serving. Here's biblical greatness. Serving, giving your life away in radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. That is what the Bible would define as great. That's what greatness is. Okay, now here's the problem. Even in church world, that that line between those two things is very dim. A year and a half into ministry, um, I went to my first like leadership little retreat, right? And so um, we get there and here was the purpose of the retreat. The purpose of the retreat was um, as a leader for you to think about this, that it's much more beneficial for you to work on your areas of strengths, not your areas of weaknesses. So it was trying to identify what your areas of strength are. So like if you're a major league pitcher, you probably throw a pretty good fastball, right? So it's more, it makes more sense for you to work on throwing your fastball over the plate than it does for you to get in the batting cage and work on bunning. That just makes more sense. So work on your fastball if you're a pitcher. And so that was the idea that you need to find your areas of strength and you need to work on those things. Make sure you live in your areas of strength. Good idea. Okay, so I'm pumped. I'm, I'm ready to go. We get this book, and uh, the first thing they want you to do is you've got to define where your area of strength is. They give you a little quiz here. You've got like 180 multiple choice questions. And it's those tests that I hate, you know, like one of those that kind of more so, not. At, I mean, one of those tests, right? And so I get that. It spits it out. And so there's things like strategic thinking that could be an option. There's things like uh, the gift of persuasion, like all these different gifts that could be your area of strength. Mine comes back as competition. I'm ready to rock and roll. My chest is pumped out. I am a competitive guy, right? Um, Okay, so I, I turn and in front of the whole group, this was read. And in this moment for me, Um, This was a huge moment in my life where God used this to convict me of things that were very unbiblical that were going on underneath the surface. Let me read to you what was read in that room. Number one area of strength for Rodney Hobbs six years ago. Competition. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look at the world, and I think it's going to be up on the screen for you too. When you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. No matter how hard you try, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement feels hollow. Like all competitors, you need other people. You need to compare yourself. If you cannot compare, you cannot compete. And if you cannot compete, you cannot win. And when you win, there is no feeling quite like it. You like measurement because it facilitates comparison. You like other uh, competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they must produce a winner. You particularly like contests where you know you have the inside track to be the winner. Although you are gracious to your fellow competitors and even stoic in defeat, you don't compete for the fun of competing. You compete to win. That sounds to me like worldly success. Under the surface of my life, here's how I started to define 
what greatness was. As long as I'm better than them. As long as I've got more than they do. As long as I have accomplished more than that person. And at the end of that, I think my identity was wrapped up in doing that. Now here's what was, was so kind of, looking back, kind of startling with all that. Is I'm with a group of preachers, pastors, church people, right? And they all came around me and affirmed, man, that is a great quality. You're going to do well with that one. And none of them called me to repentance. And I just think in this room, there's some of us that need to repent of chasing after worldly greatness. When Jesus has reversed it and said, here's what greatness is. It is you giving your life away in radical acts of sacrifice for the glory of God. That's greatness. I mean, it's as if Jesus walks us into a restaurant, fine dining, looks at the owner, says, that's not greatness. He looks at the wealthy family sitting around the table. That's not greatness. He looks at the busboy, says that is the picture of greatness. Okay, now I want to throw a little bit of weight on moms and dads in here before we go. In Matthew 20, I think there is a, there is a convicting account of this same story. And you know why it's so convicting? You know who asked the question in Matthew 20? James and John don't ask it. Their mama comes down and kneels before Jesus and says, Jesus, would you make sure my two boys are on your right and on your left? Let me ask you this question for moms and dads. And if you're a grandparent in here, your grandkids need this model. And if you're a single in here, you need to tuck this way and store it. But moms and dads, all of us have ambitions for our kids. I mean, kids are just something magical, aren't they? We all have ambitions for them. My question to you, are your ambitions great in the eyes of God for your kids? Are your, are your greatest ambitions for your kids, for them to be made much of here? For them to be great on a football field? For them to be great on a court? Are your greatest ambitions for the eyes of the world to look at them and to know them? Or are your greatest ambitions for your kids to be great in the eyes of God? Here's the number one job as a parent. It is to prepare your son, your daughter to meet Jesus. That's number one. Are your ambitions for your kids gonna make them great in the eyes of God? Now I wanna give you just a couple of practical ideas here for that. Um, Number one, Make sure you define greatness biblically for your kids. Make sure they know that greatness is not measured on a field. That is not where it's had. Greatness is measured by how low you can get and serve one another. That is where greatness is. Make sure they define that biblically. And I would just encourage you, ask them. Ask them, who do you think is great? Who do you admire most? And that's going to give you a window to their heart and who they think is great and how they measure greatness. Make sure your kids see that giving your life away for the glory of God is how God measures greatness. 
So teach them. Teach them that. This is greatness, not this. And then, and then this. Teach them to admire it. When I was growing up, I was a wrestler, right? And I'm not talking about like jumping off a turnbuckle with a chair, okay? Like the real wrestling, right? And so um, I, I had this picture up on my wall of John Smith. He was an Olympic champion, kind of in the time period I was growing up. And you know what was funny about that? Um, kind of in my wrestling career, here, here's what started to happen. Um, I began to do things like he did it. So my style looked like his. The way I carried myself kind of looked like his. The things I wore looked like what he... I, I, I st- you see the picture there? So I've, I've got this guy that I admire, and all of a sudden, life is starting to be shaped around it. Okay, now listen to this, parents. Who your kids admire is so important. Because at the end of the day, that is who they want to be like. Make sure you teach them to admire biblical greatness. And we have got beautiful examples of that all around us. Let me give you some illustrations, examples. At 11 o'clock every Saturday night, a group of guys come up here and tear. Last night, it was a quinceanera going on. We walked in and there was music that was deafening going on, Hispanic music, right? And so it was crazy. They come in every Saturday night, tear this place down, vacuum the floor so we can do church. At 6.45, people go and grab a trailer load up all the sound equipment, and bring it up here. At 7, the band gets here. They start setting up their gear. 7.30, a group of men come and unload the trailer, set up our preschool, set up all these chairs, the stage, all the kids' stuff. That is biblical greatness on display. Right now, you have got people that would much rather be in here. They would much rather be in here, but they're over here in preschool serving your kids. They're up in the children's ministry serving your kids. And they aren't babysitting. If you've got a preschooler, they are being prayed over. If you've got um, kids up here in the children's side of things, they are being taught the big truth about God. That is greatness on display for your kids. Make sure they see that as great. You know what I love to do? Laura, she is like service to the T. Like, I'm telling you, she is great at it. And if she's cooking us dinner, I'll grab Hannah, our little 20-month-old. And I don't even know if she understands me, but I'll grab her in my lap, and I'll say, look at mama. Look at her. That is greatness. Teach your kids to see that. And then last thing for you. Be an example of it. Be an example. Be an example of people who gladly give your life away for the glory of God. Let me plead with dads in here for a second. Dad's greatness is not you earning a paycheck. It's good, but it's not great. Greatness is not your home. Greatness is not your hobby. Greatness is not how nice your yard is. Greatness is not the the toys you... Greatness in your home is you serving, you laying your life down for your wife and for your kids. Giving your life away there. Moms, it is giving your life away in your, that is greatness. Be an example of that. Be an example of that in your neighborhood. I mean, be an example of people who go above and beyond giving their life away. At your workplace, be an example of that. Let your kids see that mom and dad are great in the eyes of God. Let them see that. Make sure they observe that. Okay, kids in here, this last thing and then we'll, we'll close it up. 
I know most of your parents, if you're a teenager in here, um, I know most of your moms and dads. And I think you need to hear this this morning. That because I know them, I can say that I think in the eyes of God, your mom and dad are great. And if you want to be a God-honoring teenager, you need to look at your mom and dad and thank them. And recognize that they are great in the eyes of God. There is no person on the planet that's going to sacrifice and give their life away for you like your mom and dad are. Make sure you see that greatness and recognize that and thank them for that. They are a beautiful picture on display of what biblical greatness is. Verse 45 and we're done. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Have you ever, um, like, thought about this? If somebody were to give you a pen and a paper and say, you write the story of your life. You just write it. What do you want? How do you want it to go down? You write your story. I wonder if it would sound like this. I'm going to be born in a manger. I'm going to be born into a lower class family. When I grow up, I'm going to be homeless. Friends are going to betray me. The rest are going to desert me. I wonder if it would sound like this. I'm going to let people mock me, beat me, kill me, slay me on a cross. I wonder if it would sound like that. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And then look at this last phrase. And to give his life away as a ransom for many. Here's the truth for all of us in here. Is that you will never be great in the eyes of God on your own. You can't do it. By ourselves. we will always come up with an excuse not to be great. We'll always come up with an excuse to be self-centered. We'll always come up with an excuse not to go above and beyond. We'll always come up with an excuse when we see a need not to meet it. We'll always come up with an excuse when we see something to be done not to do it. We'll always come up with that excuse. There's a billion of them until Jesus Christ and the gospel so transforms our hearts that we no longer care about being great in the eyes of the world, but being great before Jesus. That we no longer care if we're at the top of the ladder, but we value being on the bottom rung as a servant, as a slave to all those around us. When we no longer care about taking from everybody, but when our number one concern is giving our life away for the glory of God, It'll never happen until the gospel comes in and changes us. Do we value that? Do we love Jesus and want to serve Jesus and want to lift his name up? Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray over, um, gosh, Stonegate people, these men and women 